Well, good morning. Nice to see you. Thank you. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. I feel like we're in that time of year where you're either sick or you're a little sick. It's, it feels like it's, it's one or the other, um, but I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. Thanks for uh, coming and sharing um, your worship time with us today. We are in the midst, or actually we're at the end of a series called Mission Impossible, question mark, and we've been asking the question, and that is, can the church bridge the culture without losing its soul? And our answer over the weeks has been, yes, as long as bridging the culture doesn't become the mission. Because if if bridging the culture becomes the mission, then we often sacrifice the gospel in order to bridge the culture. That the goal is that we declare Christ as Savior and we declare Christ as Lord. That's the mission. And if we take something else that maybe even is a good thing and make that our mission because we're trying to connect with the culture, then we end up often sacrificing the gospel in order to connect with the culture. Because the culture is going to ask us to um, adjust the gospel or to change something about the truth of Christ in order to meet its needs. And so we've been talking about the shadow mission of churches that um, represents the, when they take this other mission that takes them just a little bit off from the gospel, but after a while, they end up miles and miles away. And we've been looking at the churches of Revelation and how by the time Christ comes and literally walks amongst the lampstands or amongst the churches, that he identifies ways that the different churches have taken on this kind of shadow mission and thus moved farther and further away from the gospel. And Christ offers critiques and um, encouragements and challenges to these churches as they attempt to live in cultures that is pushing against the gospel. And how do they relate to those cultures without losing the gospel along the way? Now, last week, we talked about Sardis. And if you remember, we talked about how uh, in Disney World on Main Street, and many of you have been to Walt Disney World, that the Main Street of Disney World is a, a feat of perceptive unreality. That the buildings are arranged to look taller than they actually are, and that the street is built to look longer than it actually is. So the whole thing is not what it seems to be. And there's something in art called forced perspective. And that's what's happening there, that that Disney, good old Walt and his friend Mickey, when you walk in, are forcing a perspective upon you that this main street is longer and more grand than it actually is. They're forcing a perspective on you. And with Sardis, we talked about how reputation can be a kind of forced perspective, that there's the reality of your life, and then there is your reputation. And you can spend all kinds of time working on the reputation, which is apparently what Sardis was doing. Because when Christ comes along, he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. The reality is you're dead. But their interest and their effort was in maintaining the reputation, the sort of unreality over here. And we'd love it if reputation and reality were consistent, especially if you have a good reality. You hope the reputation is consistent with that. But even if they're consistent, they're still not the same thing. Reputation and reality are different. 
And so Sardis had taken on a shadow mission of focusing on their reputation and not their reality. Laodicea, which is today's church, does something similar, but sort of on the other side. There's something that we call self-perception, and that is how you view your own reality. And that place of self-perception may or may not be consistent with reality. It's separate from reality. Your self-perception may not be reality, just like your reputation may not be reality. I was thinking about this this week, and we were at a retreat with um, my school, and we were at a local church, and I ran across this. Now, I don't know if a door can have a self-perception, but clearly, this is a door. No amount of signs on the door can make it not a door. It is still a door. There is a disconnect between the reality here and the door's, quote-unquote, self-perception. And this is a disconnect that we can have in our own souls and in our own lives. We can declare what we think we are. We can believe what we think we are. We can put signs out of who we think we are. But those things still might not be who we are. And a lot of times, there's situations like this where the only person you're fooling is yourself. I think you've all been in situations, and maybe your heart is not in the right place when you have these thoughts, but maybe they are. Uh, Maybe it is. You have these moments when you're at some situation, and you're looking at a person, and in your mind, you're saying, she has no idea how silly she looks right now. She thinks she's funny, but she really just kind of looks ridiculous. You you note this, the reality versus the self-perception. You say, he has no idea how obnoxious he sounds in this meeting. He doesn't have the self-awareness. There's a disconnect between the, the self-perception and the self-awareness and who that person really is. Today, we're going to stop in Laodicea. And Laodicea has some issues There's many issues, actually, but one of the main issues is with their self-perception. Laodicea would have been the final stop on this journey that the messenger would have taken in delivering these letters to the seven churches. And so we're sort of at the end of the loop down here in the middle of Asia Minor with Laodicea. And Laodicea was famous at the time for four primary reasons, and I want to mention these to you because like the other churches, the culture and the context of the time plays into the kind of message Jesus gives. And that's true of all the churches, but maybe most true of Laodicea because many of the um, ways in which they identified themselves or saw themselves are the very ways that Jesus sort of um, tweaks or pings on them in his message to them. So let me tell you these four Uh, realities about Laodicea. First, it was known for its wealth. Laodicea was wealthy. It had a thriving banking industry. It had a lucrative trading market. It even had sort of an ancient industrial section of the city. As evidence of its wealth, in 60 AD, there was an earthquake that destroyed 
Laodicea and the, and the surrounding towns leveled them. And when all the dust settled, the Roman government offered uh, money to help rebuild Laodicea. But Laodicea refused the money and said, we'll just, we'll just fund it on our own. So they reached into their own deep pockets to rebuild their own city. Tacitus, a Roman historian, said this, Laodicea arose from the ruins by its own strength and her own resources with no help from us. It had great wealth, and it was known for this wealth. Secondly, the city was famous for its garments. Laodicea was surrounded on the hillsides by a breed of black-wooled sheep, not unlike this guy. And the black-wooled sheep created a fabric that was almost uh, lavender or violet in color, almost purple in color. And it had a rich, dark feel to it that was created without the use of dyes. So it was um, a rare and highly saleable commodity, which, of course, helped lead, helped to lead to the wealth that Laodicea had. They even had kinds of factories that would produce great amounts of this fabric for these garments um, from wool that were exported all over the world. So it was known for its wealth, it was known for its garments, and it was known for its eye medicine, strangely enough. Laodicea had a early Roman school of medicine, and the school became specialized in ophthalmological discoveries. Thank you very much. See what I did there? I can't do it again. I should have just, I should have just stuck with it. Um, and particularly this eye salve, that they were able to ship out as, as pellets that, they would cr- that people could crush and mix and then rub on their eyes. And it actually worked to heal certain eye ailments. So they were known for this eye salve and their medical discoveries in, in terms of the eyes. So you can imagine how numbers three and numbers two led into number one. The eye salve and the garments helped to feed this wealth that Laodicea was constantly enjoying, which was helpful because Laodicea did have one other notoriety, and it was not as good as the three of these, and that is that Laodicea had a serious drinking water problem. They were only a few miles, Laodicea was only a few miles from two other very interesting towns with water sources. Hierapolis, only about five miles from Colossae, has and ha- had and has hot water springs that had uh, a reputation for its healing properties, for its soothing properties. Um, and it was a f- part of the lore of Hierapolis was this, these great um, pools and springs of water that would come up from the ground, these hot springs. But when you pipe that hot water down to Laodicea, which they did through aqueducts and piping, it is no longer all that hot. It's just mineral water, which if you've drank mineral water, is not always taste that tasty. It would even, it, the, the pipes, we have evidence of the pipes are actually get clogged and the aqueducts would get clogged with the minerals that would be deposited as the water came down. So there was this great water in Hierapolis, but by the time it got to 
Laodicea, it was almost undrinkable. And then, certainly the Laodiceans had friends down in Colossae, 10 miles away, which was known for its cold water springs, where there was just this fresh and refreshing cold water that would come up out of the ground. But if you did manage to get the water from Colossae, 10 miles up towards Laodicea, the good drinking water was no longer the cold and fresh water it once was. So everyone knew of this prosperous city that sort of had this ironic issue with its drinking water, in spite of all of its wealth. So those four elements, keep all of those in mind, the wealth, the garments, the eye salve, and the bad water. And I think that will help you as we look at Roman, uh, Romans, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. This is the message to the Laodiceans. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would, you, would, would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and shame, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you see it? Did you see all the ways in which Jesus' message to the church at Laodicea tapped into their self-identity, to the way that they perceived themselves, the way that they saw themselves? And it starts with perhaps the most meaningful challenge to the Laodiceans, this image of water. And sometimes it can be a little tricky to understand what's happening in that imagery because we've sort of added some of our own idioms and some of our own understandings of hot and cold to that imagery that maybe makes it a little unclear to us. When we think of hot and cold, we often think of hot, if you're hot for something, if you're passionate for something, that's good, you're on fire for it. But if you're cold, then you're not all that interested in it, and that's a bad thing. And so we might look at this passage and say, well, is Jesus really saying that he'd rather someone be cold towards him than lukewarm towards him? Like, is he really saying, I'd rather you not be a follower of me at all or an on-fire follower of me instead of in the middle? But I think that starts to confuse some other idioms in with what Jesus is saying here. I think we need to think of the context. Maybe it would have landed, I think, something more like this. Laodiceans, you know that 
those wonderful, soothing hot springs in Hierapolis? Yeah, you're not those. And Laodiceans, you know those fresh, crisp, cold springs in Colossae? Yeah, you're not those either. You're that lukewarm, brackish water that trickles in from the aqueducts that you have to like either filter or boil or just stomach. That's you. So I think in this image, cold is good, hot is good, lukewarm, not good. But this would have landed very real on the people of Laodicea because they certainly had no water source of their own and they longed for the cold springs of Colossae or the hot springs of Hierapolis. But what they have is this nasty water that can make them sick. And so when Jesus comes along and says, you are that what nasty water, and it makes me sick. You can imagine how that would land on the people of Laodicea. W.A. Criswell was a famous Baptist preacher in the uh, 20th century. So his sermons are a few generations back. But um, he uses a word in his teaching on Laodicea that I think is really interesting. He says that the church was only interested in goodish I love that. Goodishness. So I'm going to say that was the shadow mission of Laodicea. They were interested in pursuing goodishness. Criswell goes on to say this there's a great deal of goodishness that passes as Christianity. A maudlin sentimentality that speaks of something like you ought to love your mother but it's just a goodishness that actually makes God sick. Especially when it is held up to the light of the truth and revelation of Christ. The gospel of goodishness is not the same as the gospel of sharing Christ as Savior and Lord. Goodishness is not the same as holiness. Goodishness does not distinguish us as followers of Christ. We are called to something higher, something better, something greater than mere goodishness. Something better, something greater, something higher than mere lukewarmness. And the passage offers us an alternate word for goodishness in verse 19. Be zealous and repent. Now, we've seen the word repent in most of the churches. This is part of the core action that needs to happen in all the churches, that they need to turn, make a new decision, start a new trajectory away from the direction, away from their shadow mission, away from the way they've been going. For for Laodicea, their repentance needs to be a turning towards zealousness. And zealousness is not a word that we use very often anymore, I don't think. Most of you don't use the word zeal or zealousness. But it means, I think we can tell from the context, diligence, commitment, sort of an eagerness and a passion. It's it's an attempt at trying to to not just be good-ish, but to actually be good. It's, it's the desire to be truly forgiving, not just forgiving-ish. To be truly humble and not just humble-ish. 
It's this desire. Zealousness moves us away from the willingness to accept just okay. It's just okay. I'm pretty close. That's pretty good. It pushes us. Zealousness pushes us to get rid of the ish and to go for the reality of what it means to be followers of Christ. The Laodiceans, though, on top of this issue that they were pursuing goodishness, had the other problem that we've mentioned earlier. And that is, they don't perceive the fact that they are only goodish. They don't perceive the fact that they are lukewarm. They don't perceive the fact that the lives they are living are ones that are not pleasing to God. They think everything is just all right. But when Christ comes through, he offers a better and truer perspective of their situation. They thought they were well-dressed and rich and prosperous. And, of course, on the one hand, on the material side, they were all those things. But, but Jesus' terms are pretty harsh. He says, in reality, you are poor and naked and blind. And so Jesus offers them things that they think they already have. But he offers them without the ishness He says, buy gold from me, refined in spiritual fire. You think you have gold, but you have a kind of gold that is not going to last. You need to buy gold from me. You need to buy clothing from me that will truly cover your shame, that will truly cover your nakedness. And no less important, you need to buy eye salve from me so that you might actually see so that you might have the right perception of what your spirit is and where your heart is. And you may say you have all the riches you need and you have all the clothing you need and you have all the salve that you need, and God is saying you have none of what you need if you do not have me. Those mate- that material wealth should not be confused with spiritual wealth. They needed to pursue spiritual resources. And this can be a challenge, I think, for all of us. At least I and I just speak personally. My, my, my zeal for the Lord is often triggered by my hardship, which I think is true for a lot of people, which has a value. But the darker side of that is my zeal for the Lord is muted when things are going too well for me. Because I start to, even if it's subconsciously in that weird, incorrect self-perception, think, well, this is how it ought to be. I worked hard for this. That's why it's happening. I'm a pretty good person. That's why it's happening. I'm a nice guy. That's why people like me. You sort of have this weird alternative reality where because things are going well, you start attributing that to some sort of actual value. When the Lord says, make sure you're keeping track of the spiritual, that you're looking to me for spiritual wealth, for spiritual gold, for spiritual garments, for spiritual vision, lest you end up in your own funky world of self-perception. In Laodicea, their their self-perception had become disconnected from reality. 
They were not as insightful or as well-heeled or as spiritually rich as they thought they were. They weren't the bomb church that they thought they were. God says, no, you're disgusting. It's a strong rebuke, I would say. But then we run into the challenge of how do we know if we know ourselves? Did you you get that? How do we know that we actually know ourselves if it's so difficult? Jeremiah says this. In a second, Jeremiah will say this. There it is. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if you've ever had those moments where you've really delved into who you are, it can be a confusing journey to try to figure out, well, who am I really? What do I really believe? What, what is the reality of me? How do I navigate into that world? And, and certainly part of it is what we've already talked about, this idea of having Christ's eyes. But verse 20, I think, offers some el- also helpful insight. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This image of Christ standing at the door and knocking is a relatively quote-unquote famous one in Christianity. It's, I think it's used a little bit out of context in a lot of cases um, in speaking of maybe a person becoming a Christian and Christ trying to get into their lives and knocking on the door of their hearts. And that, it, It's a little more nuanced than that, I think. Um, I don't know if that's a wrong way of using it, but it's, I think, a little more nuanced in this passage because Christ is knocking on the door of a church that perceives itself to be a Christian church. He's knocking on the door of the hearts of people in Laodicea who think that they are following Christ. They think Christ is in their hearts, in their house, in their world. But in actuality, he's on the front step, trying to make his way in, waiting to be led into the deeper parts of their worlds and of their lives. I think the picture here, the nuanced reality, is that Christ can be a part of your life kept outside the door. That Christ can be a sideshow, but not the main stage. Christ can be on the periphery, but not the center. Christ can be on the front step, but you don't invite him to dinner. You don't let him too far into the house. And we all know that there's comfort levels when you have somebody at your door. So somebody knocks on your door, you open it up, it's it's the guy selling windows because they're putting in windows in your neighborhood. And your neighbor suggested that you might want one. And so you have this decision of, well, you probably, probably don't invite him in for coffee. Probably. Now, maybe you do. But there's sort of a periphery kind of thing where you kind of say, hmm, how am I going to manage this? Versus if your grandmother comes to the door, you probably respond to that differently. There's a how far do you let someone into your home? How far do you let someone into your life? How far are you going to let Christ into your life? We simply cannot have a correct self-perception of ourselves if Christ is on the doorstep. We will not be able to go through the rooms and the complicated areas of our hearts and our lives on our own with right perspective if Christ is not walking alongside us in those places. 
There are many, many rooms in our lives, and Christ needs access to them all. He needs essentially the master key to the house. Now, I want to close with a little bit of a risk that all of this involves. Because if, pe- if we allow Christ to start walking through our lives, it is likely that he's going to find a lot of ish, a lot of lukewarmness, a lot of, oh, he's a goodish over here, and he's humbleish over here, and he's faithful-ish over here. And there's going to be things that are turned up in our lives that may not be all that appealing because we're, we're, there's a risk in letting Christ walk through the rooms of our lives. And our response is often in sort of one of two ways, both of which I think Christ offers a corrective for. One response is we, we have a gain the wrong self-perspective of saying, well, I'm worthless then. I'm a horrible person. I'm unforgivable. I'm unlovable. There's nothing about me that's, re- that's redeeming. There's nothing good in me. And we can sort of start living in that incorrect self-perception. But with Christ by our side, if we walk through it not alone, but with Christ with us, and we ask Christ to be the revealer of these things, then when we start to feel that self-perception of, of being, um, imagining ourselves less than we are and, and sort of beating ourselves up, we can allow Christ to speak to us and say, you are more than you think. You are much more than you think. We, we pray that song we sang earlier, remind me who I am, Lord, in you. Remind me who I am. Don't let me fall into this incorrect self-perception that I am, I am a waste, that I am nothing, that I am a loser, that I am um, unloved and unlovable. Christ can walk through us in those rooms and say, no, you are more than you think. You are more than you think. The other reaction we can have is like that of the Laodiceans, where we kind of say, that's who I am. That's who I am. I'm ish, but I'm going to embrace my ishness, which, by the way, is what the culture wants you to do. Just find out who you are and embrace it in all its ishness. But Christ has a different solution. When he walks through and he sees that ish and that lukewarmness and that sin, he as our revealer says to us, this may be who you are, but it is not who you will be. May Christ walk with us towards our will be. Pray with me. We're going to have a couple different ways of, of thinking about and praying over and responding to this message to the church in Laodicea. And this first invitation is simply for you to think for a moment about your zealousness and your energy level, your commitment to Christ. In a moment, as a response, we're going to sing a couple songs of of increased commitment, of, of taking steps of new faith, of reaching higher and going beyond what we've reached for in the past. And so I'm going to pray for us. Then I just invite you to, to sing these songs as a kind of renewed commitment 
away from lukewarmness and towards zealousness. So Lord, as we sing these couple songs together, we do so as a prayer, as a request that you would draw us deeper, that you would draw us further, that you would create an energy and a passion and a zealousness in us that we have not experienced before, that you would find in us and really create in us a passion to follow you in each and every area of our lives, that this word zealous would become part of our spiritual vocabulary. And that we would follow the call to go higher. That we would follow the call to step out onto the water. That we would follow your lead into new places of faith, of justice, of humility, of compassion. And so, Lord, receive these songs that we sing as our prayer, as a community, as a campus, as families, as individuals. Receive these songs as our request, as our prayer to follow you more deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.